Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello and welcome. I hope as you're listening to this that you are having a better time than I am right now. Uh, I'm currently sitting in a very big old house. And as we know, it is the change of seasons, meaning things are getting cold outside. And uh, this is the first time I'm experiencing any kind of mouse activity. From what I understand, the mice don't want to be outside because it's cold. So they come inside. And I don't blame them. I don't want to be outside either. But I definitely don't want them in here where they unfortunately are. So that's what I'm dealing with. Thankfully, this is not the place where I live, but I'm currently living in it right now for the next couple of days. And uh, I gotta say, I'm not a fan. I didn't think that I was scared of mice. And I'm not really scared of mice. I'm much more scared of spiders, believe it or not. But there's something about the jump scare of a mouse running across the floor that is not fun. Uh, And if you have ever experienced any kind of mice in your home or whatever, then you know, I'm sure, that it is not a fun thing to deal with. So not loving this, but it's fine. We are going to make it through. But anyway, that's enough about me. Today, we are going to be talking about the dating game killer. More specifically, we're going to be talking about Rodney Alcala. Now, Rodney Alcala in the world of serial killers is one of the most prolific, if you will. He has been compared to serial killers like Ted Bundy, which I will talk about later. But the reason he's called the dating game killer is because in the late 1960s, early 70s, he was a contestant on a game show called The Dating Game. And this was in the middle of his killing spree. So we will definitely get into that. But before I jump in, I did want to give a quick trigger warning. There will be mention of really intense topics. I won't be getting into too many specifics about any of the really brutal killings that happened in this story, but it is a story about a serial killer, and he's awful. Just wanted to put that out there at the top. But with that said, why don't we jump in? On September 25th, 1968, it was a beautiful, sunny day in Los Angeles, California, and eight-year-old Tali Shapiro was walking and skipping to school from Chateau Marmont, where she lived with her family which is a very famous hotel in Los Angeles. Her father was a music industry executive, and she and her family had been living there temporarily after their house had caught fire. That morning, she had on her white Mary Janes with white socks, and since it was so warm, she decided to wear a crocheted dress that her nanny had made for her. As she walked, a car pulled up alongside her, and a man leaned out the window and asked Tolly if she wanted a ride to school. Tolly told the man that she didn't talk to strangers and kept walking, but he pulled up further to stay with her as she walked. And that's when he told her he knew her parents and was friends with them. Tolly really didn't want to get into that car, but she was raised to respect her elders, and if her parents wanted her to get in, then she would. She got into the back seat, and as he pulled away from the curb, he asked what time her school started. After she told him, he told her they had plenty of time for him to swing by his apartment, that way he could show her a poster. Tolly really didn't know to fear people at that age, but as he mentioned they would be going to his apartment, she began to get nervous. 
She said she felt like she wanted to jump out of the car, but since she was only eight years old, of course she didn't do that. Thankfully, as this car had pulled away from the curb with Tali in the back seat, a man named Donald Hines had noticed the interaction and thought that it was weird that this little girl had gotten into that car, so he followed them to the apartment. This good Samaritan watched as the man got out of the car and took Tali out of the back seat and walked her inside. Something definitely did not seem right. So he quickly called the police. And thank goodness he did. Chris Camacho Jr., an LAPD officer, had been traveling down Sunset Avenue through West Hollywood when he received the call about a possible kidnapping. He arrived at the Hollywood apartment and thought to himself, if this had been a kidnapping, he should probably have some backup, so he called for some, which he would soon find out was a very good move. Camacho went to the front door and started knocking, and as he did, he could hear someone running around inside. The man came to the front window and peered out of the curtains and told the officer that he had just gotten out of the shower, so he needed to get dressed. Camacho, seeing this man who was undressed and not wet at all and didn't have a towel, felt like something was very wrong. Camacho yelled that he needed to open the door and let him in. The man yelled back that he needed to put his pants on, so Camacho told him, Okay, I'll give you three seconds. After about five seconds had passed, Camacho kicked the door in, and what he saw inside would stick with him for the rest of his life. Trigger warning, this is awful. Looking inside, he could see to the right was a dining room, and to the left was a living room, and straight in front of him was the kitchen. Lying on the floor in front of him was Tolly. Her clothes and shoes had been scattered around the kitchen floor, and she was surrounded by a pool of blood. She also had a steel bar lying across her neck. Camacho looked at the girl, and it seemed like she wasn't breathing. And in that moment, the other officers came into the apartment and began looking for this man. As Camacho came back into the kitchen, he saw that the little girl had actually begun gagging and coughing, which really kicked things into high gear because they felt like they had a chance to save her. Camacho began yelling, and the officer who had been by the back door thought that he was yelling for help, so he ran back into the kitchen, and officers later found out that the man had escaped through the back door. Tali had been bleeding out and was clinging to life, but thankfully there was already an ambulance racing to the scene. When she arrived in the emergency room, the doctor said she had no chance of being saved. Her injuries were just too extensive. Back at the apartment, officers were searching for clues as to who this man was, which was when they found a UCLA student ID. The ID belonged to Rodney Alcala, who was a student in the UCLA photography department. After searching that house, they were stunned to find that he had hundreds of photographs of young women and boys in various stages of dress and vulnerability that were in his possession. Police knew they had to get this guy because if he was willing to do what he did to Tali, there was no telling what he would do next. It was sheer luck that Tali didn't die that day. She was in a coma for 32 days, and nobody believed that she would survive. But somehow, she did pull through. She managed to get back on her feet after a few months in the hospital. And the only positive thing that came out of that was Tali had no memory of anything that happened inside that house. Her last memory was getting out of the car. And honestly, that is great news, because no person should ever have to remember something that traumatic, especially an eight-year-old. 
it is terrifying to think about what would have happened if that man who saw her get into the car didn't follow the car and call the police. It's honestly incredible that he did because I feel like so many people would have seen that exact thing and maybe had the thought that something was wrong, but not everyone would have called the police or followed the car. But thankfully, Donald Hines followed the car, called the police, and ultimately saved Tali Shapiro's life. Because if they came any later, she most likely would have died. After her survival, her parents never spoke about what happened. It wasn't ever talked about again, which arguably could be damaging to her, considering people need to work through their trauma. But she was eight years old at the time, so I don't fault her parents too much, that's for sure. Hopefully she just got into therapy later in life. But when she went back to school, she recalled her classmates looking at her as if she should have been dead. Not long after she was released from the hospital, Tali's parents decided they wanted to move out of the country. They had had enough, so they left California for Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Her parents wanted a safer environment for her to grow up in, and that's where they stayed for many years. At the time of the attack, Steve Hodel had recently become a detective with the LAPD. He had started out about four or five months prior. He went to UCLA to interview Rodney Alcala's professors because he was nowhere to be found. His professors were shocked when they learned what Alcala had done. They told Detective Hodel that he had the wrong guy. Rodney was really great and he wouldn't hurt a fly. Police were baffled because why would this guy who was supposedly really nice and well-liked viciously attack an eight-year-old girl? They wanted to know who Rodney Alcala really was. Rodney Alcala was born in San Antonio, Texas, on August 23, 1943. He was the third of four children to be born to a Mexican-American family. In 1951, Alcala's father moved the family to Mexico to live with their grandmother in her old age. However, when she passed, Alcala's father abandoned his family in 1954, when Rodney was only 11 years old. His mother moved him, his brother, and his two sisters to suburban Los Angeles. Alcala was an academically gifted student who was reasonably popular among his peers and was supported by his family. He attended various private schools during his youth before graduating from Montebello High School. He was on the yearbook planning committee and on the track and cross-country teams. Everyone who knew him said he was kind and respectful growing up, which is honestly shocking. I do know that it's not always nurture. Sometimes it's just nature. Not every serial killer or bad person or murderer comes from a really awful broken past. Sure, it's not great that his father abandoned him. That's definitely traumatic. But by all accounts, Rodney was popular, well-liked, well-loved by his mother and siblings. So it's shocking. His older brother ended up going to West Point. So when Alcala turned 17 years old in 1961, he joined the U.S. Army to become a paratrooper. During his service was when the trouble really began with him. He was noted by his commanding officer as being manipulative, vindictive, and insubordinate. Alcala was disciplined on several occasions for assaulting young women. In 1964, after what was described as a nervous breakdown, during which he went AWOL and hitchhiked from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to his mother's house in California, Alcala was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and was estimated to have an IQ of 135 by a military psychiatrist, which is quite high. 
he was subsequently discharged from the army on medical grounds. By that time, Alcala had these horrific urges that he refused to ignore. After leaving the army, he briefly went to New York City, where he assaulted a woman by hitting her over the head with a Coke bottle, but thankfully she did manage to get away from him. It was after that that Rodney went back to L.A. to begin classes at UCLA. He had enrolled in the UCLA Fine Arts program as a photography major, and he had been living only a mile away from Chateau Marmont in 1968, which was the year that he attacked Tali Shapiro. However, after the attack, he vanished. In 1969, the FBI became interested in the case and put Alcala on their 10 most wanted list. Detective Hodel believed Alcala may have gone to Mexico since he had relatives there. But after Tali Shapiro's attack, Rodney Alcala actually fled to New York. He made friends, he charmed people, and he got into NYU's film school. He enrolled under the name John Berger, Berger being spelled as B-E-R-G-E-R. And no one at NYU suspected that their new classmate was living a terrifying double life. This is an example of just a terrifying human being, because everyone in his life is shocked to find out that he is capable of doing anything, even remotely vicious or violent. He seemed to be just a normal young man doing a creative path in college and got into both UCLA and NYU, which is not an easy thing to do. So it's honestly just very interesting that he was able to lead such a successful double life. And three years after Tali Shapiro's attack, Rodney Alcala's dark side once again showed itself. Prosecutors would later say that Alcala toyed with his victims, strangling them until they lost consciousness, then waiting until they revived, sometimes repeating this process several times before finally killing them. Many times, he would lure women into his trap by telling them they could be a model, and he would take their photo to submit to a photography contest, and they had a real shot at winning. He technically was a professional photographer. He would take pornographic photos of women and sell them to a publisher. So there was that. But to these women, he seemed professional enough. He had a nice camera, and he came off at least somewhat trustworthy. He could also be quite charming at times, and people have said that he was quite good-looking. He wasn't necessarily my cup of tea, but he was some people's cup of tea. He had very chiseled features, like a very prominent jawbone and face structure, and he had really puffy, curly hair for a long time. He honestly kind of reminds me of Ted Bundy, where people were like, oh my god, he's so good looking, but honestly, he's not. He wasn't. He wasn't, like, butt ugly, per se, but he wasn't, like, a 10. And people have compared him to Ted Bundy, because... He was quote-unquote good-looking, and he was charming, and he was killing women left and right. One police detective described Alcala as a quote-unquote killing machine. He also didn't use his camera just to get to these women. After killing them, Alcala placed their bodies in grotesque poses and would oftentimes photograph them. In June of 1971, Cornelia Michelle Crilly became his next victim. Cornelia was a 23-year-old flight attendant for TWA. At the time, she had been temporarily staying with a friend, Leon Borstein, as she got her own new apartment ready just around the corner. Crilly had spent the day moving in when her friend Leon Bornstein came home from work to find that her door had been locked and she wasn't answering. 
When the police arrived, they entered the home and found Cornelia had been stripped naked, raped, and strangled with a nylon stocking. It is believed that Crilly met Alcala as she was moving into her new apartment and that she might have accepted his help moving in some furniture, which I believe was a Ted Bundy move. I think he also was like, can you help me move this furniture? I don't know that he was offering to help others, but he had women help him and he had like the fake broken arm. Damn. It sucks that people who are somewhat good looking come off as more trustworthy because in cases like this, it really worked for them. The police focused in on Cornelia's murder, but with almost 2,000 murders in New York in 1971, investigators couldn't close this case. They didn't have any leads, since the forensic tools at their disposal weren't nearly as good as what we have today. So the case went cold, and remained cold, for 40 years. At the time, Rodney Alcala hadn't even been a suspect. After the murder, he moved to New Hampshire, where he landed a job as a camp counselor at an arts and drama camp for girls. I couldn't imagine a worse place for him to be. He also continued going by John Berger while he was a counselor, but he spelled Berger like B-U-R-G-E-R. But thankfully, his time as a camp counselor was pretty short-lived because two of his campers went to their local post office and saw that their new counselor's photo was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. They basically just looked at each other and said, that's Mr. Berger. And those girls then reported what they had seen to the dean, who then called authorities. So it seems like he had no time to be really awful with these young, vulnerable girls. Alcala was finally arrested and taken into custody, and that's when police in California were notified that the man they had been looking for for years had finally been caught. Police were eager to charge him for Tali Shapiro's attack. However, at that point, her family had left the country. So with no main witness, prosecutors had no choice but to offer Alcala a deal. He could plead guilty to the lesser charge of child molestation and register as a sex offender. And Alcala took the deal, but the judge's sentence stunned everyone working on the case. He was only given one year to life in prison, and the parole board let him go after only 34 months. That was a really huge, vague range to be sentenced to. So it basically meant that the parole board was in charge of how long Rodney would be in prison, which was why he got out after only 34 months. So less than three years later, Rodney Alcala was a free man once again. Almost immediately after his release, he was arrested again when he was caught smoking marijuana with a 13-year-old girl. After that, he was sentenced to another two and a half years in prison, but was again released on parole in June of 1977. For whatever reason, his parole officer allowed him to go to New York for the summer. And that summer in New York was chaos because the heat was unlike anything the city had ever seen and there was a sanitation worker strike. So there were mounds of trash piling up on the streets, violence was at an all-time high, and it was the time of the New York City blackouts where sections of the city went without power for days. The 1977 blackout also resulted in citywide looting and other criminal activity, including arson. So crime in the city was at an all-time high, so it was definitely easy for Alcala to fly under the radar. Even though he was responsible for quite a few murders in New York at the time, they weren't able to be pieced together because there was just so much other stuff happening. 
It's like a serial killer's playground. They can do whatever the hell they want. And honestly, Los Angeles wasn't all that better. The 70s in general were just a huge time for the serial killer in the United States. And Rodney Alcala definitely took advantage of that. So during this citywide chaos in New York, Rodney Alcala spent his time roaming the streets, asking people if he could take their pictures. And many times that worked for him. One of the women he took photos of was the daughter of a well-known nightclub owner, Ellen Hover. On July 15th, the day the blackout ended in New York, Ellen was reported missing. Because of her family's high profile, her disappearance was all over the papers. Detectives thought they were onto something when they found an important clue in her apartment. She had marked on her calendar that she was going to see someone named John Berger on the date that she disappeared. Alcala, as we know, had used the name John Berger, and immediately the FBI knew that that was him. So they went to him for questioning, but since Ellen was still missing, and they didn't have a body, they couldn't pin it on him. They had no body, no evidence, just his alias written on a calendar. So Rodney told police that he had met Ellen for some pictures, but when they were done, she just went home. And they couldn't really prove otherwise, even though they knew he was lying. Ellen's body wasn't found until a year later. She was buried on the grounds of the Phillips Memorial Hospital in Westchester near the Rockefeller Estate. Her body was so decomposed she needed to be identified from her dental records. But by that time, Alcala had left New York and was on a road trip across the country back to California. Once back in LA, he spent his time going around to popular social spots like the beach or the mall with his camera in hand, asking women and girls to take their pictures. Between 1977 and 1979, Alcala took photos of many different women, but four of those women were found dead. Their bodies were found with extreme signs of physical abuse and sexual assault. The first of these women was Jill Barcombe, who was from New York but had been visiting Los Angeles. Second was Georgia Wickstead, who was a 27-year-old local nurse. The third was Charlotte Lamb, and last was 21-year-old college student Jill Parento. Although all four of those women's murders had similar patterns, they were assumed to be victims of other killers who were loose at that time in Los Angeles. Because like New York, LA was also running rampant with killers. And it was the 70s, which, like I said, seemed to be the height of the American serial killer. So police didn't link the murders together. It was also around that time that Rodney was chosen to be a contestant on The Dating Game. The Dating Game was a daytime television show where one woman would ask contestants questions and based on their answers, she would pick someone to go on a date with. If you're unfamiliar, she would sit on one side of the stage and then on the other side of the stage, there were three men that she'd be asking the questions to and between her and the men was a partition so she couldn't see them. So she'd ask questions like, what's your most ideal first date? Or if I were going to serve you for a dinner party, what would you be? And then they would answer. And for the dating game episode that Rodney Alcala was a part of, Cheryl Bradshaw, who was the lucky woman to be asking the questions, did actually ask that question. If you were something to be served for dinner, what would you be? And Alcala answered, I'm called the banana and I look really good. 
The show was supposed to be pretty sexy and provocative, and most questions that people asked ended up getting some kind of sexual answer in return. And the audience really loved it. When the casting people came across Rodney Alcala, they were pretty split on what to do. One woman thought that he was very striking, and said that he was really attractive, and all the women would really love him. However, one of the men on the casting team came across Rodney Alcala, and he immediately marked him down as NW, meaning no way. He noticed Alcala had a really strange personality. The casting woman convinced him to include Alcala because he was so good-looking in her eyes. So the casting guy was like, okay, we'll include him, but we have to surround him with two very normal guys to balance him out. Jed Mills, who was Bachelor number 2, said he noticed immediately that Alcala was extremely weird. When he first met Alcala, he said to Mills, quote, I always get my girl, in a really aggressive way. So Rodney Alcala was contestant number one, and Jed Mills was contestant number two, and then there was another man for contestant number three. And the fact that Rodney Alcala, a serial killer, was on a daytime television show like The Dating Game is already crazy enough, but at the end of the show, he was actually chosen for the blind date. Cheryl Bradshaw was the bachelorette on the show on September 13th, 1978 with Rodney and had chosen him for her date out of the three contestants that she had. At the start of the show, Rodney was introduced to the crowd as a successful photographer who spent his time riding motorcycles and skydiving. His answers to questions she asked were apparently the best and she felt a connection with Rodney. However, thankfully for her, she ended up backing out of the date last minute with Alcala since she found him creepy once she actually met him backstage. So the day after they left the show, Cheryl called the casting woman Ellen and told her she couldn't go on the date. He gave her weird vibes. And it's very clear that the dating game did not do any kind of background checks because if they had, they would have seen that Rodney Alcala had already been in and out of jail for multiple really terrible things. I mean, he obviously hadn't been caught for any of the murders yet, but that was coming. Only two months before becoming a contestant on The Dating Game was when Rodney had tortured and killed 21-year-old Jill Parento. It was actually almost two months to the day before, which is so creepy to think about. You can actually go online and search up Rodney Alcala on the dating game and you can watch the clip of him smiling and laughing and giving his stupid answers. It is probably some of the most eerie television that has ever been recorded because it's such a dark undertone. Just knowing the context of the situation is horrifying. That man was a demon and then he was chosen for a blind date. Like, it's unbelievable. Rodney had been living with his mother at the time in Los Angeles, mostly because he didn't have to pay rent. He had been making money by shooting pornographic photos, like I said, and sending them to a publisher in New York. On June 20th, 1979, Rodney had driven to Huntington Beach, as he did many times before, to hunt for women. He started at Sunset Beach, where he ran into a 17-year-old girl on roller skates named Lori Woods. Lori and her friend Patty were approached by Rodney, who told them he was a photographer, and if they could just skate toward him, he would take their picture. And since Lori wanted to help out this random guy, she agreed. 
He asked her a lot of questions like her name, her age, where she was from, and after he took the photos, he tried to convince her to get into his car. He actually insisted she get into his car, but Lori wouldn't. And after he got into his car, she watched him drive away toward the direction of Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach in 1979 was full of sunbathers, roller skaters, kids, and people walking on the boardwalk. It was a place where people felt safe because of how many other people were around them. Little did they know that Rodney Alcala was searching the beach for his next victim. Soon after he arrived, he came across two girls. One was named Robin Samso, who was 12 years old, and the other was her friend Bridget, who was also around that age. It was 2.30 p.m. He asked the girls if he could take their picture. He would submit them to a swimsuit competition, and they had a real shot of winning. Bridget was having none of this. She didn't want to interact with Rodney at all, and insisted they leave. She lost it even more when Rodney put his hand on Robin's leg. Thankfully for these two young girls, there was a woman who noticed what had been happening and stepped in to yell at creepy Rodney Alcala. And after that, Rodney ran off. But not long after their strange interaction with Rodney, Robin realized that she had her dance class at 4 p.m. and she was going to be late. So Bridget told Robin that she could borrow her bike to get there on time. And before Robin left, Bridget told her not to stop for anything, just ride all the way to her dance studio. But that was the last time Robin would be seen alive. A little before 4 p.m., Robin left on the bike, but she never made it to her class. At 5 p.m., Robin's brother called Bridget and asked if she was with her, or if she had left because she hadn't shown up to ballet. Bridget told them that Robin had borrowed her bike to get to class, but she had left over an hour ago. This was obviously incredibly alarming, and that same night she was reported missing. But with no bike and no body, the police had nothing to go off of. Investigators brought Bridget in to speak to a sketch artist who created a sketch that, to Bridget, looked very similar to the man that she had seen on the beach that day. Twelve days later, a park ranger in Sierra Madre had come across some human remains. Robin's body had been scavenged by animals, so there wasn't much left of her, but they had found her. During the search of the area, they also found Robin's shoes, which confirmed that it was in fact her. The sketch that had been made a few days earlier had actually made its way to Rodney's parole officer, who apparently immediately recognized him. So police found Rodney and arrested him on suspicion of kidnapping. They also had a search warrant, and when they searched Rodney's home, they found explicit photos that he had taken of women, as well as the receipt for a storage locker in Seattle, Washington. They couldn't technically take the receipt as evidence since their search warrant apparently didn't include any paper, so they couldn't take anything that was paper out of Rodney's apartment, but they were able to write down the address and the information of the storage unit because it was out in the open. At the same time, one of Rodney's sisters had gone to the jail to visit him, and they started talking about the storage locker. And somehow, Rodney was overheard saying, it's a good thing they don't know about the storage locker. If that's true, that's an insane thing to say in a jail. Especially if the things in the storage locker are incredibly incriminating. Why would you say that? There's obviously people around you listening. But also I wonder, why would he say that to his sister? 
Was he that comfortable sharing that there were really terrible things in a storage unit to his sister? Did she know about the things in the storage unit? I highly doubt it, but what an odd thing to say. And they did know about the storage unit, Rodney. They're about to search it. What they found inside broke the case wide open. They found thousands of photos of people. Some of the photos were normal, but others were extremely pornographic and violent. They also found a small satin beaded pouch, and inside was a lot of different pairs of earrings. Police went to Robin's mother and showed her a picture of a pair of gold ball earrings that had been found in the storage locker. And right away, she recognized them, saying that her daughter had been wearing those earrings on the day she went missing. It was obvious that Rodney was keeping trophies for his victims. And finally, he was charged with Robin's murder. This would actually kick off what would become a 30-year trial. He was initially put on trial in 1980 for Robin's murder. And during that trial, Robin's mother had actually shown up to the courtroom with a gun. Her plan was to shoot Rodney. She didn't have any other plan. All she wanted to do was avenge her daughter's death and kill Alcala. And since at the time they didn't have metal detectors in courtrooms, she waltzed right inside with a gun in her purse. According to her other daughter, who was also there that day, her mother was very calm and kept saying, it's going to be okay. She had her hand on her purse and she was ready to kill the man who killed her daughter. But sometime during that day, she said that she heard Robin's voice telling her not to do it, which made her change her mind, and she didn't end up shooting him that day. That honestly gave me the chills, because I can't even begin to imagine the emotion that that mother was feeling, especially knowing that you're sitting in the same room with the man who took your 12-year-old's life. I feel like that could bring a lot of people to be damn near homicidal. Clearly, it brought her almost there. But somewhere inside her, maybe it was Robin's voice, or maybe it was her own mind talking herself out of it. But it was a good thing that she didn't do that. Because if she killed Alcala, sure, he would be dead. But then she would have to live out the rest of her days, probably behind bars, which wouldn't be great considering she had three other children. So ultimately, it was for the best that that isn't what happened but I definitely understand the impulse. On May 8th, 1980, thanks to the discoveries found in his Seattle storage locker, the jury deliberated for less than five hours and found Rodney guilty, and he was sentenced to death. But a few years later in 1984, Rodney appealed, and somehow his lawyers were able to argue that the jury had been improperly informed about Rodney Alcala's prior sex crimes. They said the jury's decision came more from the knowledge that Rodney was a convicted child molester rather than the evidence that they had on Robin's death. So he actually was granted a retrial, which happened in 1986 with a different prosecutor. This was seven years to the day after he murdered Robin, and again he was convicted and sentenced to death. But in 2001, it was overturned once again. He argued that his defense in the previous trial hadn't put forward a strong enough case on his behalf, which feels like a shocking reason that he could be granted another trial, because that kind of sounds like a him problem. Your defense didn't put forward a strong enough case on your behalf? Boo friggin' who? That should be on him. It shouldn't affect literally everyone and have to do a trial again over for a third time. But... That was what happened. He was given a third trial. 
In 2003, prosecutor Matt Murphy was put on the case, and when it was given to him, he was told that it would not be easy. Clearly, it wouldn't be, since he's already gotten the death penalty twice and still somehow managed to get out of it. So Matt Murphy went back to the pouch of earrings found in the storage locker and had it DNA tested, which they weren't able to do at the previous trials. And the DNA found on the earrings ended up matching to Charlotte Lamb, Jill Parento, Georgia Wixted, and Jill Barnum, which were his victims. So that was definitely a slam dunk for the prosecution. The third trial was set for 2010, and the prosecution clearly had a very strong case against Alcala. But Rodney, who was definitely a narcissist, decided he would represent himself in his final trial. Rodney may have had a genius-level IQ, and he felt like he was good enough to represent himself, which famously is not the right call, but is a common call by many serial killers, Ted Bundy included. And I know the word narcissist is thrown around a lot, but Rodney was definitely a narcissist. He was diagnosed. He was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, psychopathy, and sexual sadism comorbidities. One thing the prosecution had to prove in this third trial was torture. They wanted the jury to understand the full scope of Alcala's violence. He would strangle his victims until they fell unconscious, let them wake up, and then strangle them again, and rinse and repeat. He knew what he was doing, and he enjoyed it. But something insane that happened during this trial was since Rodney was representing himself, he also got to cross-examine the witnesses, including Robin's mother, he got to question, or really just argue, with the mother of a 12-year-old girl that he murdered. He tried to poke holes in her argument, but really, the jury just watched this crazy man further traumatize this mother. One of the sources I used said that Rodney apparently told the court that he was at Knott's Berry Farm on the day of Robin's abduction as part of his defense. But that conflicted with testimony from other eyewitnesses who reported seeing him at the beach at the same time. So that was a lie that went right out the door. Not only that, but the prosecution had a star witness, which was Tali Shapiro. She was a full-grown woman by that time, but Matt Murphy felt like it was extremely important for her to testify as the one who got away from Rodney, to show how brutal and violent he actually was. It was time to testify and put him away for good. After hearing all of the evidence, the jury deliberated for less than two hours before they found him guilty on all charges, and he was, for the last time, sentenced to death. Although he was already on death row, investigators in New York were investigating two of Rodney's murders from the 70s, and he was going to be extradited to New York to stand trial for their murders, but surprisingly, he pled guilty to them. I guess at that point, he had nothing left to lose, so case closed. After that, the Huntington Beach police released hundreds of photos that had been found in the Seattle storage locker. They weren't sure if any of them in the photos had been other victims of Alcala, but they were hoping that releasing them to the public would somehow lead to more answers and someone would recognize people in the photos. And they were right. Because of those photos being released, police were able to solve another murder that was decades old at that point. Christine Thornton had been missing and assumed dead for 40 years at that point. But after coming across the website with Rodney Alcala's photos on them, Christine's sister Kathy was able to identify her sister in one of the photos. 
Police had actually found a body in the 80s, but it was states away in Wyoming from her home in Texas. And with no DNA evidence, the case just went cold. That was until 2015 when Christine's sister gave her DNA to a national database and they were able to match her DNA with Christine's. And sure enough, the body that they had found in the 80s was confirmed to be Christine Thornton. They were even able to figure out the exact location where Christine's photo had been taken. It was out in the middle of the desert and Christine was sitting on a motorcycle and because of the photo, they were able to literally find the exact spot where they were, which is also very eerie. Alcala had killed Christine Thornton directly after he had killed Ellen Hover in New York. He had gone on the road trip back to California, which is when he ran into Christine in Wyoming. Ellen Hover's death was also linked to Alcala in 2013, as well as the death of Cornelia Crilly, the airline stewardess. It's unsure how many people Rodney Alcala actually killed, he spent the rest of his days in prison until his death at the age of 77 years old. He died alone in his cell on July 24th, 2021. He had spent more of his life behind bars than he did free, and that's what he deserved. Rodney Alcala was a monster, and the world is a better place without him. Tali Shapiro is reportedly in her 60s and has a happy family of her own. According to the Cinemaholic, she lives in California and apparently works in the food and beverages industry as a personal professional in Palm Springs. It's devastating how much death and despair came out of this case, and it's horrifying to think about the things that Rodney Alcala did for years. But it is so extremely fortunate that Tali Shapiro was able to survive, and at such a young age. Like I said in the beginning, it was really thanks to that bystander who saw her getting into the car with this random man on the side of the road and knew that that didn't look right. And he followed his instinct and he called the police and he saved her life. And that is huge. My heart goes out to the families of these victims and... Like I said, no one really knows how many people he actually killed. It could have been a much larger number than we know, but hopefully it isn't. Also, just to circle back very quickly, it is so insane that this man was on the dating game. It seems like such an innocent thing. You would never, ever suspect in a million years that contestant number one is a professional photographer, skydiving enthusiast, motorcyclist, and a serial killer? Like, what in the world? He truly thought that he was never going to get caught, and he thought that he was so smart and he could get away with anything. He didn't care if people saw his face, knew his name. He was unconcerned, and that is so very clear by the fact that he put himself willingly on daytime television. It's wild to be that self-obsessed and self-absorbed and kind of in love with yourself to think that you're so charming and, you know, whatever, that you can win a date on a TV show with a woman and then do God only knows what with her. That's terrifying. But clearly, in some kind of messed up way, he was kind of right because he did win the date. I hate that, as I'm sure we all do. Uh, but anyway, I did want to leave off on the positive note of Tali surviving because that's really incredible. And I'm so glad to hear that she has a family of her own and she's living her life and seems to be in a good place now. So 
we wish her the absolute best. But anyway, I think I have had quite enough of the horrors of Rodney Alcala. So why don't we move on to something a little lighter and brighter, and I'll tell you something good that's happening in my life as a bit of a palate cleanser. My good thing is that I'm going to get to spend some time with my family this weekend, hang out with my sisters, and then I will get to hang out with my mom. So I'm excited for that. Hopefully we'll get to do some fun things and eat some good food. And uh, yeah, also another really good thing is that I have been working on something really exciting and I'm very ready to share it with you guys. I don't know exactly when this exciting thing will drop. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, that's my goal. But I have been working really hard for a really long time with some awesome people on creating merch for the naughties. So I'm definitely excited about that. Hopefully that will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for that. I'm so obsessed with the designs of the things that are coming out and We've just got some really exciting pieces that I cannot wait to use and show off. And I hope that all of you love them just as much as I do because I am really excited. But anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nontoday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out a multitude of bonus episodes and vote on stories you want to hear, head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or something crazy that's happened to them that you'd like to share and possibly hear on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. <laughs>